Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers is a Christian apologetics ministry led by Dr. Pat Zukran. Pat provides compelling messages from top apologetics scholars, defending the Christian worldview and provides valuable resources for every person seeking answers to life's questions, as well as addressing key issues of our time, serving to equip Christians who want to effectively engage their world for Christ is our focus. Skeptics and critics argue that the story of Jesus is more mythology than history. Is there good historical evidence that supports the accounts recorded in the Gospels? Does archaeology build a case for or against the Gospels? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, our host, Pat, will be sharing from his weekly YouTube series, Question of the Week, where he looks at several key discoveries that have confirmed the historical integrity of the Gospels. So we could spend all day here as I go through the hundreds of archaeological discoveries that confirm the Gospels, but I'll just take you through a few, all right? First, Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, has been found to be a very accurate historian. For example, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands without error. Now, as archaeologists and historians, one of the things we look for is what we call cultural and historical synchronisms. All right? When an author, when a writer is giving you details about the culture and historical details, and he is dead on accurate again and again and again, well then that shows you this is a very accurate historical account. And what we have here is a very good historian. And that's what we're finding in the Gospel writers, especially in Luke. For example, Luke's titles of government officials, proconsul, tetrarch, first man of the island, and others that are used in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, some seem very strange and were questioned by historians for years, but they were discovered to indeed be accurate. For example, in Acts 19 verse 31, Luke uses the title of Asiarchs for leading government officials there in the Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey area. Now, scholars question Luke's credibility since this title was not a familiar title used of government officials nor was it readily found in the Greek and Roman literature of that time. However, it was soon discovered in the historical writings of Strabo and the historian Eusebius that indeed this title Asiarchs was used of government officials in many of the cities there in Asia or Asia Minor. And so this adds to the credibility of Luke. These Asiarchs were probably the wealthiest of the wealthy all right, and were elected government officials responsible to finance things like the international games and other major building projects in these cities in Asia Minor. In Acts 17, verse 6 through 8, Luke uses the title Polytarch for city authorities. Right? Now, this was another government title that was rarely found in Greek literature for government officials and historians question whether Luke was indeed mistaken on the use of this title. Well, in 1835, an inscription on an arch in the city of Thessalonica 
this arch dating well in the first century, somewhere around 65, 75 AD, and it lists the names of seven polytarchs of the city. And since then, we have found in several other cities that indeed this was the title used in several of the Macedonian cities of leading government officials. So when you have a work like this, like Luke, that demonstrates in these kinds of cultural and historical details, I mean, he just nails it and is accurate, then you can trust his historical work as reliable. F.F. Bruce, one of the great New Testament and history scholars of modern time, wrote this. He said, a man whose accuracy can be demonstrated in matters where we are able to test it is likely to be accurate, even where the means for testing him are not available. Accuracy is a habit of mind, and we know from happy experience that some people are habitually accurate, just as others can be depended upon to be inaccurate. Luke's record entitles him to be regarded as a writer of habitual accuracy. Sir William Ramsey, back in the early 20th century, was a skeptic. And it's a famous story where he traveled to Israel and Turkey and Greece for the specific reason of disproving the Gospel of Luke and Acts. After years of intensive study, he ended up becoming a Christian. And he wrote this in his work. He said, Luke is a historian of first rank. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Those of you in the legal field know that if we have a witness taking the stand, all right, and there's no videotape of the incident that's under trial, and there's maybe only one witness who witnessed the particular event, well, what lawyers will do is they will question this witness and ask him about details of the incident. What time was it? What color was clothes was the defendant wearing? Where did it take place? Describe the area. Was there anyone else around? Uh, what was the weather like? You know, and if he's getting these detailed facts right again and again and again, then you have a witness upon which you can build your case. And there have been several times where guilt has been charged upon the witness of just one person. I had a friend, he was the only witness at a driving range when a dog there bit one of the workers there at the driving range and he was the only witness and the dog's owner alleged that this dog was being harassed by this worker and the worker was saying no this is an aggressive dog and he didn't attack him well based on the credibility of my friend he was able to name the circumstances the type of dog it is the color of his fur at what time the circumstances where was the worker he got these details right and upon his sole testimony, then the dog was indicted and put to sleep. So that's what we have in these gospel writers, especially Luke. Now, there have been numerous other significant discoveries, and I could go on all day about these, but we'll, we'll just go over a few. One is the Pool of Bethsaida that we hear in John chapter 5. It's at the Pool of Bethsaida where Jesus heals a man who's lying next to the pool and John describes the pool as having five porticos or five gateways. Now this site has long been in dispute until recently. The pool of Bethsaida was discovered in the northeast quarter of the old town of Jerusalem 
and you can go and see that site today. I've been there several times and it's about 40 feet underground. You go and walk down these steps and archaeologists discovered a pool with indeed five gateways or five porticos matching the description of John chapter 5. Another pool, the Pool of Siloam. In John 9-7, John mentions this long-disputed site of a great miracle that occurred at the Pool of Siloam. Now, in John 9, we read the story of Jesus healing a blind man by spitting on the ground, making mud, and then rubbing the mud into the eyes of this man. And then Jesus tells this blind man with mud on his eyes, go wash in the Pool of Siloam. Now, People wondered where this pool was, and in the late 19th century, we felt we discovered this pool there at the end of the famous Hezekiah's Tunnel there. But in 2004, while workers were working on sewage lines, engineers came across first century steps at the pool located there at the end of Hezekiah's Tunnel, about 20 steps. And after looking at the archaeological artifacts, they confirmed the date in 2005 that indeed this was the pool of Siloam where this miracle occurred and it matched the description in John chapter 9. So we have several places that are mentioned in the Gospels that are confirmed. We also have people in the Gospels who are confirmed by historical discoveries. For example, Pontius Pilate. Now, you all remember, he's the governor who presided over the trial of Jesus, and evidence for his existence was discovered at a place in northern Israel called Caesarea Maritima there in 1961. An Italian archaeologist uncovered the fragment of a plaque that was used as a section of the steps leading to the Caesarea Theater. And you can read the inscription. The words there are in Latin, the famous Pontius Pilate plaque. And the inscription written in Latin read, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of the emperor Tiberius. Okay, the monument was dedicated to the emperor Tiberius. And remember, he's recorded in Luke and the other Gospels. He reigned from 14 to about 37 AD. And this fits well with the chronology of the New Testament, which records that Pilate, ruled as procurator over Israel from 26 to 36 AD. So here we have historical confirmation of one of the key characters in the Gospels, Pontius Pilate. Well, in 1999, the ossuary of Caiaphas, the chief priest during Christ's trial, was discovered. And Caiaphas, if you remember in John chapter 11, verse 49, it was Caiaphas, the chief priest that year, who stated, it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Well, in 1990, while a work crew was working on a road southeast of Jerusalem in an area called the Peace Forest, on a particular hill called the Mount of Evil Council, how ironic is that? The family tomb of Caiaphas was discovered. And Josephus tells us that Caiaphas, his full name was Joseph Caiaphas. And a very ornate, beautiful ossuary. An ossuary is a box, right, in which the bones of the deceased are put in. So it's not as huge as a coffin. It's a box where the bones there are placed. And on this beautiful, ornately decorated ossuary dating to the first century was found the name Joseph 
son of Caiaphas. Now, this very decorated ossuary and where it was discovered indicates that this was a very high-ranking and important official of the first century. And archaeologists and historians are convinced that this is indeed the ossuary of Caiaphas, the one mentioned in the Gospels. Now, we also have some what we call cultural synchronisms, all right, cultural details mentioned in the Gospels affirmed by archaeological discovery. One of them is called the Temple Warning Inscription. You know, King Herod, between 19 and 9 BC, rebuilt the Temple of Jerusalem. And he built an outer court with colonnades known as the Court of the Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles could enter this area, but they were forbidden to cross into the inner courts. That was only allowed for the Jews. And there's a warning sign there in Greek and Latin stating if a non-Jew entered, it was an offense punishable by death. And this limestone plaque about 22 inches high, 33 inches long, was discovered there in 1871. And it read this. It said, No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. So this confirmed the description of the temple as described in the Gospels. Right? So there we have people and places confirmed, a mention in the Gospels confirmed by archaeological discovery. Then we have something called the Yohanan Ossuary, where in 1968 another ossuary was discovered of a first century man who was crucified by the Romans. And his name was on the ossuary, as many names are carved in to this stone ossuary. His name was Yehohanan. And when they examined the bones in there, they discovered that his right heel and wrist had indeed the seven-inch spikes still in there, those seven-inch Roman spikes that were used to nail Jesus' wrists and feet into the cross. And in fact, the nail was still lodged in the right heel of this man, affirming that indeed the description of how Jesus was crucified by the Romans was indeed true. Then we have another one called the Alexamenos Graffito. This is a work of graffiti found in the Palatine Hill in Rome there. It's a Roman work of graffiti discovered to date about the third century AD. And this was a graffiti, you know, just like today. It was carved into a guard room there on the Palatine Hill near the Circus Maximus, or what is the main road there through the city of Rome. And this graffiti illustrated the sentiment of Romans towards Christianity. And what was shown there? Well, there's a picture of someone hanging on a cross, a crucified man hanging on a cross as described in the Gospels. But the man had a donkey's head. And at the foot of a cross was a Christian man named Alexa Menos, raising his hand in worship of the man on the cross. And there's an inscription under this picture that reads, Alexa Menos, worships God, or Alexamenos worships his God. This graffiti affirms the crucifixion of Jesus, that he was hung on a cross as described in the Gospels. It affirms that the Christians worshiped Jesus as God from the very beginning. It's not something that was made up 400 years later, as skeptics allege, and that Christians were ridiculed throughout the Roman Empire. 
So those are just a few, and we could spend all day going over the archaeological discoveries that confirm the historical accuracy of the Gospels. Now, if the Gospels are historically accurate, then indeed what they say about Christ, his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection are indeed true, and Christianity is indeed true. Right now, let's get to some of the questions that uh, I received over the past month and weeks. First one says, Pat, archaeology may prove the historical credibility of the Gospels, but it does not prove the miracles of Christ. That is correct. But if we have a historical work that is indeed shown to be historically accurate, then we can trust its account on what it reports regarding the life of Jesus Christ. Second of all, remember in the previous episodes, I showed how the Gospels are written well within the first century, well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Okay, now that's important because of this. Historians, we know that it takes about 80 to 100 years for legends to develop. Why is that? Well, all the eyewitnesses who can verify the accounts as true or false have to die and pass away from the scene. That's the only way legends and exaggerations and misinformation can start coming into the text. Well, the Gospels are written well within the first century, well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. We think anywhere from 10 to 20 years after the resurrection, very early. So these Gospels are being circulated in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, uh, anywhere from maybe as early as 10 to maybe 40 years after the resurrection. But it's very early, well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. If the Gospel accounts were not true, then the enemies of Christianity who wanted to see the testimony of the Gospels and the disciples discredited, I mean, they were scrutinizing their accounts very carefully. And if there was any misinformation, legend, mythology in there that could discredit the testimony of the Gospels, well, they would have pointed it out immediately and the Gospels would not have lasted to this day. Yet the Gospels survive because they are indeed historically accurate and they these accounts could not be refuted by the eyewitnesses there. In fact, in Josephus and the Talmud and in others, they affirm that Jesus did powerful works. But like the Talmud, it just affirms that it was due to sorcery or magic. They don't deny that he did powerful works. They just try to find another way to explain it. Here's another question here. Pat, what about the Q document? Does the existence of this document threaten the credibility of the Gospels? Well, first of all, what is the Q document? This is what we call the Quell document. Now, many historians believe that Mark is the first of the Gospels. I hold to Matthew's priority, but many hold to Mark. And that they have overlapping stories. Matthew and Luke have overlapping stories with Mark. Therefore, they believe that the gospel writers looked at each other's works and gleaned from each other's accounts. It doesn't threaten the inspiration or credibility of the gospels at all. I mean, if contemporary historical works are out there, of course we'd be cross-referencing and looking at their writings. However, there are accounts in Matthew and Luke that are not recorded in Mark. And where did they get these accounts from? Well, some scholars, many on the liberal side, allege that there is a Q document out there called the Quell document. The Q document, and they believe that perhaps Matthew and Luke got these accounts from this Q document. Well, 
We have found over 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts of the Gospels, okay? Many of them fragments dating, some dating to the very early 2nd century, all right? The Rylands fragment dating to about 120 AD. But we have found over 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, not one shred of Q. Isn't that strange? We've never had any fragment of a Q document, all right? Now, you include quotes from the church fathers and the quotes from non-Christian historical works and early translations and others. I mean, you end up with over 24,000 documents and no reference to Q and no discovery of a Q document. So that's very strange. And the date of the Gospels, they're very early. I would say well before 70 AD, as we've shown in previous episodes, probably about 60 AD, maybe some as early as in the 50s. Being that early, it's highly unlikely that there is a Q document. These authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, probably got it right from the source, right from the eyewitnesses. And Matthew wouldn't need, any, need it because, uh, you know, he's an eyewitness. And Mark and Luke got it from the apostles whom they were speaking and ministering with. But even if, even if there is a Q document, that wouldn't argue against the Gospels. That would actually argue to the credibility of the Gospels. Because as we showed last time, the Gospels are written before 70 AD, all right? Perhaps in somewhere around 60 AD or right after that. Or they could be as early as in the 50s, mid-50 ADs, let's say. Well, then if there's a Q document from which they got the information from, then this Q document would be even earlier than that. This Q document would be from the early 40s, perhaps mid-40s. All right, now you're talking real early. Now, we've got a document, okay, real early, maybe 10 years after the resurrection, all right, from which these gospel writers are gleaning from. So it doesn't hurt the doctrine of inspiration or the historical reliability of the Gospels in any way if there is a Q document out there. I personally don't think there is one, but even if there is one, it doesn't hurt the credibility of the Gospels in any way. Well, let's look at our last question here. Pat, what about Mark chapter 16, the last 10 verses? Many scholars think those verses do not belong in the Gospel of Mark. Does that hurt the credibility and historical reliability of the Gospels? Well, most of you, if you look in your Bibles there in Mark chapter 16, right about verse 9, you have a line in there in parentheses that says, most of the earliest manuscripts do not include the last 10 verses of Mark. Now, I personally don't think those last 10 verses are in the Gospel of Mark, but that doesn't matter. Let's just say for argument's sake, it is part of the Gospel of Mark, all right? Let's just say it is. Well, what's in those last 10 verses? Well, the disciples discover the empty tomb. Christ commissions them to go and preach the gospel. And, you know, we have the resurrected Christ commissioning his disciples to bring the gospel to the world. Well, if it's in the gospel of Mark, it doesn't change anything. If it's not in the gospel of Mark, it still doesn't change anything. All right, so whether it's there or not, it doesn't hurt the historical reliability of the Gospels. There's no major doctrinal contradiction or error in those final 10 verses. Okay? So there are many alleged contradictions, 
or errors in the Gospels, but you take a good book, New Testament commentary, or a good book such as what my mentor wrote, When Critics Ask, or another book, uh, Bible Difficulties by Ron Rhodes and Norman Geisler, or other books like that, and these alleged errors or contradictions are easily answered. So what we have in the Gospels is indeed a historically accurate document that tells us about the miraculous, sinless life of Christ. And if the Gospels are true, then Christianity is indeed true, right? Well, join us next week when we're back here to finish this series on the historical reliability of the Gospels. I hope you'll be able to join us next week. And remember, if you're being blessed by what you're hearing, hit that like button or hit that subscribe button there at the Honolulu Christian Church or under Patrick Zucharin. And enjoy great articles if you're interested in this stuff in much more detail on our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Hey, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And keep sending your questions in to my email at pat at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat at evidenceandanswers.org. And we'll try to address some of your challenging questions here on the following episodes of Question of the Week. So I hope you join us again here on Question of the Week. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuccarat. Yeah.